Good morning. Welcome back to the program. History and great historical events are generally not just a series of unfortunate events. Rather, they're part of a long, connected progression of events that circle around and become knotted in each other and have far-reaching consequences that last years and decades and sometimes centuries. It often seems that because we seldom learn from such events, that these historical events don't have a normal half-life. Nowhere is this more obvious than in today's Middle East, a place where today's troubles are often the result of yesterday's folly. Might it have been different today if a century ago the British had listened to T.E. Lawrence, the man popularized the 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia? Let's listen to a clip from that film. Damn it, Lawrence, who do you take her orders from? From Lord Faisal, in Faisal's tent. Old fool! Why turn from him to him, their master and man? My lord, I think, I think your book is right. The desert is an ocean in which no oar is dipped. And on this ocean the Bedou go where they please and strike where they please. This is the way the Bedou has always fought. You're famed throughout the world for fighting in this way, and this is the way you should fight now. Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, sir, but you're wrong. Fall back on Yenbo, sir. And the Arab Rising becomes one poor unit in the British Army. What is this to you? Lawrence, do you know you're a traitor? No, no, Colonel. He is a young man, and young men are passionate. But they must say their say. But wiser people must decide. I know you are right. Very well, sir. When shall we move? The sooner the better. You'll lose another 50 men tonight. You tread heavily. But you speak the truth. I will give you my answer tomorrow, and now... Uh... It is late. Colonel Brighton means to put my men under European officers, does he not? In effect, my lord, yes. And I must do it, because the Turks have European guns. But I fear to do it. Upon my soul, I do. The English have a great hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. Then you must deny it to them. You are an Englishman. Are you not loyal to England? To England and to other things. To England and Arabia, both? And is that possible? I think you are another of these desert-loving English. That is... Stand up. Gordon of Khartoum. No Arab loves the desert. We love water and green trees. There's nothing in the desert. No man needs nothing. Or is it that you think we are something you can play with? Because we are little people. A silly people. Greedy, barbarous, and cruel. <laughs> what do you know, Lieutenant? In the Arab city of Cordoba were two miles of public lighting in the streets when London was a village. Yes. You were great. Nine centuries ago. Time to be great again, my lord. Which is why my father made this war upon the Turks. My father, Mr. Lawrence, not the English. But my father is old. And I... 
and long for the vanished gardens of Cordoba. However, before the gardens must come the fighting. To be great again, it seems that we need the English or... Oh. What no man can provide, Mr. Lawrence. We need a miracle. My guest, author and journalist Scott Anderson, lays out the reality of these events in his new book, Lawrence in Arabia. Scott Anderson is a veteran war correspondent who has reported from Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Northern Ireland, Chechnya, and many other of the world's hotspots. He's a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. His work has appeared in Vanity Fair, Esquire, and Harper's. He's the author of several novels and the co-author of War Zones and Inside the League with his brother John Lee Anderson. It is my pleasure to welcome Scott Anderson back to this program to talk about Lawrence in Arabia, War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. Scott Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's great my to pleasure. Ha- great to have you here. In many ways, that clip captures, I think, many of the issues, many of the themes that, that you deal with in the book. The idea of, of one, Lawrence's divided loyalty, and, and really the broader framework of the battle that was going on between the, the Bedouin Arabs and the Ottoman Turks. It, it, it very much does. It, it really encapsulates the, the core dilemma that faced Lawrence. That the longer he spent, he he went to Arabia as a British intelligence officer and as a, as a liaison to Faisal, uh, who's in that clip, um, and basically to get the Arabs to fight along the lines that that the British army in the Middle East wished them to fight along. Um, but Lawrence also knew that there was a secret deal between the British and the French that at the end of the war, the, the British and the French were going to divide up the Middle East uh, between themselves, despite having told the Arabs they were going to give them independence. So the longer Lawrence was in the field and the more he identified with the Arabs and the, the men he, that he was recruiting and, and watching fight and die along, alongside him, the more he felt, um, the, 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 the more conflicted he felt, to the point where he really did shift his loyalty f- away from the British and t- to the to the Arab rebels. Unlike in that clip, though, it wasn't necessarily just a desire to spend time in the desert and a love of the desert. There was a natural affinity that that Lawrence had for the Arabs. He understood them. He understood their tribal structure in unique ways. Talk a little about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Lawrence actually went out. He he became fascinated by um, the Middle East as a, as a young man be, prior to World War One. He he went out. Uh, he, well, he first became he was fascinated by uh, the the Crusader period and by by medieval warfare, and that's what he studied at Oxford. And when he when he was 19, he went on a, a 1,200 mile walking tour by himself across Syria, visiting Crusader castles. Um, Really unheard of for the for the for the time of this this young slight Englishman just tramping through the desert, and from that time on he he developed this very deep affinity for for the Arab world, and he seemed to be one of those people who just who seemed to very quickly uh, grasp how that society worked. Um, and the interesting thing is when he then when the war started when he got to Arabia, because he had studied medieval warfare and that was really the, his, his area of specialty at Oxford, much of the way the war in Arabia was fought in the 20th century was very similar to the way European was fought in the 14th century. 
So he had this this grasp. I, I, you know, in the desert, where who you attack and when and where is predicated by these very primal things of where do you get water, where do you get forage for your animals, how do you how do you move supplies across uh, you know hundreds thousands of miles of desert, and so he understood that in a way that your conventional British military officer trained in modern warfare techniques would have found it utterly utterly alien. So he had he had this this remarkable ability to 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 really see how the war there needed to be fought. And he did this without any formal training whatsoever as a military officer. In fact, as you talk about it, he became a military officer quite by accident. <laughs> That's right. He he never had a single day of military training and the the great story of how he became a, a an officer is right when World War 1 started, um he was attached as a civilian to the the British military headquarters in London uh, in their mapping office, and one day a British general came in who was who was about to take o- take command of an army in in France, uh, came into the mapping room because he wanted to see the, the latest maps of the, of the battlefield area, and uh, it, it, he was this general was incensed that he was being um, advised by a civilian, so and he demanded to speak to an officer. Well, there was there was no other there was no other officers around, so. They hustled Lawrence out to the Army Navy supply store and and made him a second lieutenant. So that's how Lawrence uh, <laughs> joined the British military. To what extent was there also a problem with respect to the British military in terms of its basic lack of imagination? Not only Lawrence's skill and Lawrence's insight into what it was going to take to fight in this kind of landscape, but the the lack of any kind of imagination as far as the British military was concerned. Yeah, it was absolutely staggering. Um, I, I the other day I was thinking that there there were seven major offenses, um, um, major engagements in the Middle East uh, between the British and the and the Ottoman Turks, and in every one the British had the overwhelming numbers. Um, the British, the, the the Ottoman army was it was famously underfed, under underarmed, and in the, in, in the first four of, of those seven engagements, the British were slaughtered. Because they insisted on doing these frontal assaults um, against against entrenched men, you know, machine guns were the, the great equalizer of World War One, and it, it, it's amazing how long it took people to realize that you know frontal assaults don't work when you're going up against machine guns, and yet the British did it again and again and again. And the penultimate example, perhaps, is the battle and the taking of Aqaba. Right, um, Aqaba is is. Certainly, Lawrence's greatest uh, military achievement. Uh, Aqaba is a, is a strategic, small town. It was it, then it was a very small but very strategic uh, port um, on the on the uh, Red Sea, and the British uh, had a plan to do an amphib- amphibious landing and, and take the town. What Lawrence knew, because he'd been in Aqaba before the war, is that immediately behind Aqaba is this this towering uh, mountain range that goes on for 60 miles, but it, it, it starts almost at the, the shore of, at Aqaba. And so the, so his point to the British military was, oh, sure, you can take the town, but then you're stuck on the beach because you can't advance because the Turks have, you know, they have machine gun emplacements and, and blockhouses all through the mountain. So what Lawrence came up with, his idea, and, and interesting, he didn't tell anybody in the British military he was going to do this. He set off with 45 Arab rebels. He did this 600-mile trek through the desert to fall on Aqaba from behind, to come to come at Aqaba in the exact opposite direction of, of what anyone would ever expect. 
and it was it was a smashing success, and and they took Aqaba. The aspect of this that is consistent through so much of this story as it relates to Lawrence is this parapetetic nature that he has, which, as you detail it in the book, really in many ways comes from his upbringing, from his parents and various aspects of his youth. That's right. Um, Lawrence was... Well, I don't know if we would consider it illegitimate today, but he was considered illegitimate at the time. His father um, had um, had had a previous family, and he was still, he had four daughters. With he was an aristocrat, he was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat, um, and he ran, he basically ran off with the governess. And so Lawrence's um, mother was the governess, and he was one of five kids. Um, but the father was never able to divorce. Though his wife wouldn't grant him a divorce. And given the given the mores of the time, and this was late Victorian England, they lived as fugitives, and and the the father was terrified that he would cross paths with someone who knew him. He changed his name to to uh, to Lawrence. Lawrence was a fictitious name, and so by the time T. E. Lawrence was eight years old, he had lived in six different places. And again, if, if, you know that's not that unusual, perhaps in, in this day and age, but uh, highly unusual a hundred years ago. So he had this, he, you know, he, he really lacked uh, a roots anywhere, and he also became aware at an early age that there was this dark family secret. Um, he, he pieced most of it together as a uh, 12, 13 years old, not all of it, but I, so I think he, from a very early age, he had this feeling that he was an outcast. How did he see his role in the Middle East? How did he see his role as this fulcrum between the Arabs and the British? Um, I think it's the great sort of tr- why Lawrence is this is this kind of Shakespearean tra- tragic figure, uh, you know, and and why people still remember him almost a hundred years on. What happened to Lawrence was when he went out to to join the Arab Revolt, and he he maneuvered himself into a position where he really was the most important British battlefield commander in the Arab Revolt. The longer it went on, he 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 struggled mightily and and in underhanded ways and and overt ways to try to get the British to live up to the promises of independence that they had given to the Arabs. And as the war went on, he saw increasingly that in fact the Arabs were going to be betrayed at the end. And and even Aqaba was designed as a way to thwart the imperial designs of of, of his own country of of Britain because what Brit, what the British wanted to do they wanted to get to Aqaba first. So then they could kind of box the the, the Arabs into Lower Arabia and, and prevent them from spreading the revolt north. Um, so the longer the war went on, the more Lawrence felt, and he he says it in his his memoirs of the Seven Pillars of Wisdom that he felt like a fraud. He he, he felt like a charlatan to the point where he really became almost suicidal in the field. He he, he went into battle clearly hoping to be killed on a number of occasions, just on just in suicidal odds. Um, and but somehow survived, and then went to the Paris Peace Conference. Tried to represent, tried to appeal to the conscience of the Western world that, that they needed to to stand by the promises they'd made to the Arabs, and was ultimately um, just cashiered out. One of the things we see is this, and and it relates to what you're talking about, this unraveling of Lawrence during the latter days of the war, and and his increasing the risk that he took every step of the way. That's right. He was. He would. He would lead camel charges against um, Turkish you know, Turkish armored trains, and um, it, it was wounded a number of times. 
and it's interesting in his early days when he first got to the Arab Revolt, he there was one engagement in particular where I, I think about a, a dozen Arab rebels were killed under the command of a British officer, and and Lawrence railed against this British officer for his callousness. Um, uh, and then two years later, um, Lawrence is is getting far more Arab rebels than that killed in in his own under his own leadership, and doesn't have a problem with it. Um, towards the end of the war, he was he would he would uh, before a battle he would tell his followers to take no prisoners that um, that uh, you know anyone who tried to surrender should be killed. Um, and in the most amazing thing, just that, that about a month a month before the end of the war, in a, in a large battle, he he gave us no quarter order, and one of his units didn't get the didn't get the command, and so they actually took uh, 250 Turkish and German troops prisoner. And when Lawrence doubled back, he found these prisoners just sitting on the side of the road. And as he said in his own, in his official report of the battle to the, to the British High Command, he said, um, I ordered the Hotchkiss, a Hotchkiss being a machine gun, I ordered the Hotchkiss uh, turned on the prisoners and made an end of them. Um, so he was, he was really going, I, I feel, sort of half mad from the war, and certainly by our standards today, committing war crimes. And I think that's one thing that the movie gets so well. Um, it, I mean, Lawrence really became a, a kind of an anti-hero, but, but a tragic figure of a man driven mad by both combat and the betrayal uh, that he's seeing coming. There's also this kind of masochistic streak that Lawrence has that he had since youth. That's right. As a as a as, as a very young man, uh, eighth grade, um, he would. Um, he would he would do these tests, these self tests of where he would go for days without food, days without sleeping, days without water. He he'd bicycle, um, you know, 150 miles, and it was this. He was obsessed with pushing himself to the limit of his endurance, and yes, and, and I think certainly it tipped into uh, it, it was more than being a stoic. It was it was it definitely tilted into being a, a masochist, and you saw that play out in in the desert too during during the war that he it's it stood him in good stead because he could he could ride a camel for days without food without water the same way the arab bedouins that he was with could and it was part of it was part of the power he had with the arabs because they had never seen a westerner as hard as lawrence was Talk a little bit about his decision to wear Arab dress and how this combined with all of the things we've been talking about, how he was able to square that with the British and, and really not be taken in for treason at various points. Right. No, it's, it's, that's a, it's a really good point because he, well, when he first started in, in the Arab revolt, um, uh, it, initially because it's in the Islamic holy land of, of Arabia, no, he was the first British officer allowed to travel into the into the interior of Arabia, and to keep a low profile, Faisal, uh, the their Arab uh, rebel leader, advised him to wear Arab dress so that he so that so that he could come and go from Faisal's tent and consult with him without drawing attention. He would just look like another tribal sheikh. Um, but as you as you allude, the, the the really interesting thing about that is that as time went on, uh, Lawrence. Wore almost exclusively um, Arab robes, even when he was back in Cairo, and, and much to the to the shock and outrage of of his fellow British officers. Um, but it also signified his his shift in loyalty. 
Um, and even at the Paris Peace Conference, he wore Arab robes. Um, and I think it just it just neatly encapsulates the fact that here's a man who is has essentially gone over to the other side. And yet there were many British, including British officers, that were not unsympathetic once they understood the degree to which the British were going to sell out the Arabs after Sykes-Picot. That's right. And I think that there is something utterly unique about the British. And, and you're asking you know, how, he, how Lawrence avoided getting um, court-martialed. I mean, at a, at a, at a key moment, uh, Lawrence divulged the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was the agreement between the British and French to carve up the region. He divulged that to Faisal um, at a time when Sykes-Picot was still ultra-top secret. So, you know, divulging a secret treaty to a third party in wartime, I, it, I mean, that is pretty treasonous. And, and you know, in most, in most any military, that would certainly get you court-martialed if not put in front of a firing squad. But the interesting thing with the British during this time is that there, there really was this old-fashioned streak with them uh, that a gentleman's word was his bond. So among the British military leadership who were aware of the promises that had been made to, to the, um, the Arabs as far as independence and who were also aware of how much Sykes-Picot uh, conflicted with that, there was, I think there was a general moral unease with what, with what was happening. Even if they didn't have much personal um, affinity for the Arabs, they still held to this idea that Great Britain, as a great power, had to live up to its promises. So I think that, I, I think that in any other army that it was fighting, um, including the Americans, um, Lawrence would have been put in front of a firing squad. Um, but because, of, because he was British, he had this leeway that he, would, he wouldn't have had anywhere else. What's also interesting towards the end, we were talking about the way he started to unravel what we would perhaps look at today as a kind of PTSD, that that was really the point that his fame reached its apogee, partly as a result of, of this series of programs that Lowell Thomas did. Right, right. The, the, the fantastic irony of Lawrence's life is that in 1919, uh, during the Paris Peace Conference, which went on for six months, uh, Lowell Thomas, this American journalist slash Huckster um, was doing this this series of, of shows in London and later spread all across uh, uh, England and into the States um, called uh, Lawrence in Arabia um, and basically made Lawrence a matinee idol. And at the same time that that that, that was going on, he truly was one of the first true matinee idols in, in, um, in you know, modern history. At the same time that's going on, the British government is is trying to ease him out of having any role at the Paris Peace Conference to the point where senior officials in the, in the British Foreign Office are openly calling Lawrence a traitor because he's, he's insisting on standing by uh, the Arabs and, and trying to represent their interests. So it's this wonderful thing of where he was, I mean, not wonderful for him, <laughs> but where he, he, is be, he is becoming nationally famous at the same time his own government is, is trying to cut him off at his, at his knees. Engage in a little speculative history for the moment and talk a little bit about how things might have played out differently. Had Lawrence been listened to, had events unfolded differently as a result, and how it might have affected the Middle East today? Well, I don't... You know, people often will go back to this period of, of at the end of World War One and and imagine what would have happened if... if, if the Arabs had been given their independence, and, and there had been this this vast unified Arab nation. Um, 
I think Lawrence was always a realist about this stuff. He, I, I don't think he ever believed that there was going to be this this one great Arab nation. That, 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 when you think of the, you know the difference between a place like Egypt and uh, Iraq, the, the, the differences are so vast and and much beyond what actually binds people together. But I think his idea was that you with with this with this racial affinity with with the common commonality of religion what you create are sort of many states that are then linked together out of mutual self-interest but mainly commerce you know so, um so, so there would be this natural evolution that would that would gradually bring these places closer together these and different tribes together uh different clans but i don't think he ever really imagined that there was going to be this golden future in in the middle east that said what he what he was really opposed to, and what and the disaster he saw coming was if the European powers, and especially the British and the French, tried to carve up this region between themselves and impose their will on it. Uh, the Arabs were a very different group of people than than other places where the British and French had gone in and colonized, and he saw disaster coming. And in typical imperial fashion, the way they drew lines of of the borders, say say Iraq. Uh, utterly artificial borders that threw three large groups of people together who um, had, have always been um, had great animosity for one another. So it, it was the what was what was created at the end of, of World War One was was kind of just a series of powder kegs waiting to go. And as as Faisal says in that clip we played at the outset, you get the sense that he doesn't really believe it either that we could be great again, but it was not to be. Right. That's right. And um, I mean, there was, and I think that most significantly what, and it's almost a more on a philosophical level, I think the real tragedy that, that came to that part of the world at the end of World War One because the, the Europeans tried to impose their will on it. And by the way, it started blowing up within about, about a year. I mean, there were, there, were, there were civil wars and riots throughout the Middle East by 1920. But what it created was this culture that has stayed now for nearly a century of that and having traveled all around the world and covered wars everywhere, what has always struck me about the Middle East is that so many of these wars and so many of the fighters I've talked to they define that they define themselves by what they're against, not what they're for and I think that is a problem with with the Arab world in general that what you know, it's it's anti-West, it's anti-imperialist, it's anti-Zionist. But there's and it's always what they're against, not what they strive their society to become. Scott Anderson, the book is Lawrence in Arabia: War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. Scott, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 